Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. What we had we read as we go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a whole lot of the history of the people of Israel. They're still not in the promised land, and Joshua is kind of where we transition from Moses leading them out of Egypt and through the wilderness and to the edge of the promised land, and Joshua, who's now going to take the people into the promised land, and you'll see the way uh, throughout the book of Joshua that God does that through him and his people. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for... uh, for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. We ask that this morning, by your word and by your spirit, that you would continue the work that you are doing in each one of us. That you would continue the work that you are doing in us together as your church. That you would continue to make us into the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Turning to Matthew 28. We see the disciples, after Jesus raised from the dead, uh, hearing some similar words as what Joshua was hearing when God had given him a job to do. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, and then 16 through 20. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. 
There you will see him. I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And then in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. In Acts chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, This ought to sound familiar if you were here a week ago. Acts 2, verses 12 to 16. Uh, We read in the children's sermon a bit about that Pentecost day. And here we pick up a bit of that story. When there was a loud noise and the people gathered and wondered what in the world was going on, they heard them speaking in their own languages. And so, verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, well, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. This is is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That may seem like a strange place to leave off right at the very beginning of his sermon. So it is. But I want you to notice, as we read all those passages hopefully you were able to pick up on this, that there were a few themes that sort of uh, kept running through. Did you notice any of that? Uh, how many times did somebody have to tell somebody else not to be afraid, but to be strong, to be courageous? Over and over again, through all these passages, it is the same kind of idea of God has given them something to do that they can't do on their own, They're going to be afraid unless they remember that he is with them. And that as long as he is working in them and through them, they don't need to be afraid. In fact, they can be strong and they can be courageous. Whether that was with Joshua going through and uh, going through the promised land, whether it was the disciples where Jesus tells them to go into all the world and make disciples, whether it's Peter standing up at Pentecost in the middle of people who are already making fun of them and saying it's just a bunch of drunk people. There's nothing here for us to pay attention to. There's nothing for us to take seriously. You guys are crazy. And rather than turning around and hiding, saying, well, guys, let's just huddle up here, he gets up right in the middle of it all. He stands up 
raises his voice and addresses the crowd and says to them, this has nothing to do with alcohol. This has everything to do with the power and the Spirit of God who is among us. In fact, this ties in exactly with what the prophet Joel spoke long ago. This is what God has been doing and what he's continuing to do even now. That being said, that's what we're talking about this morning. About what God has been doing and what he's continuing to do even now, even in life of this church. Here's the thing. Today we are celebrating our third anniversary in ECO, although the life of this congregation stretches back much farther than that. And when we are in our basement today, I do hope you'll take a look at the pictures that go years and years past. Um, so you can see how the life of this congregation has extended much farther than three years. But, is that rain? <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. It is not often we get to hear that on a Sunday morning. It's very good. Um, where I was now. <laughs> hey, Amen. Let's go eat. <laughs> no, there is more. That's what I was going to say. Is uh, there? <laughs> there is always a temptation. Uh, there's always a temptation when things have gone well to stop and to camp there. You remember when? Uh, Jesus was with the disciples on the mount when he was transfigured before them. And what do they want to do? Well, let's just stop here. We'll just build tents, what Peter says. Just build two tents. We'll stop. We'll camp here. And done. But they weren't done. They had more to do down the mountain on the other side again. And um, and so, yeah, Peter's idea, not such a good one. Um, and it's easy, especially in, in getting into it new denomination to say, okay, well, we're here, we've done what we were going to do, and that's it. So now let's just camp here and forget about moving forward. That's always a temptation, and I want to be clear on this. Last week I talked about um, the first of the five shifts that ECO has identified as saying, these are shifts that the church needs to make, um, and that you know, these are things that are not just shifts that we need to make now, but these are shifts that we need to make always, because... What happens is we are all the time falling back into these um, positions that are not what God calls us to. That's what we always do, whether it's individuals or together. And so the reason that the Bible constantly has to say, don't be afraid, is what is the position we tend to fall back into? We tend to fall back into being afraid. And so he has to keep on reminding us of who he is and how he's working and the power that he has in this world and even in and through us. And so he says, don't need to be afraid. Keep reminding of that because you keep forgetting and going back into fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. <laughs> and the same thing with all of these uh, five shifts the church needs to make is because together, even as the church, we tend to fall back into these things. So last week we talked about going from being clergy centered into an unleashed laity. And if that is something that's not taken on where we are right now, it's just this is something we always need to guard against becoming clergy centered, but always moving towards being unleashed. Lady. Today, we're looking at, um, I lose my bullet already, <clears throat> going from safety and preservation to risk-taking and expansion. Did I just mess up my microphone already? 
I get to leave my bolts in there. It's, we're not used to that. From safety and preservation to risk-taking and expansion. And uh, and the, the idea here is, of course, that this is what the church tends to do. Is uh, you want to get in a position of safety. You want to get into And in fact, it's not just church. We do this all the time. And especially if you look at it uh, in how we raise our kids in such absolutely protected bubbles. Where you know maybe you can ride a bicycle if you have on the full helmet and elbow pads and knee pads and every you know what just put on the full football uniform and the seatbelt and the we'll put the pillows around you so that you can never ever ever possibly get injured in any way. Okay, maybe we don't go that far, but we do tend to have <laughs> have these ideas. And in fact, we're we've gotten to the point where even if we don't communicate it this way, it's certainly how we feel, which is the that if anyone ever gets injured in any way, somebody messed up. Somebody is to blame. Somebody, somewhere, fell on a job because we tend to have the idea that our society should keep us completely safe all the time. This is one of the reasons why we respond so uh, in such shock. We have shootings like we did in Orlando last week. We have shootings like we had in Newtown, Connecticut. Years ago, this is why we respond in shock. Not because we don't believe that people are capable of great evil. Not because we don't uh, believe that these things, kind of things, could happen somewhere at some point. But because we have some part of us that thinks somebody should have stopped this before it happened. Somebody should have kept this from happening. In fact, we we should be guaranteed safety. All the time. No matter how I say it that way. But there's a certain amount where we collectively feel that way. That we should be kept safe all the time. In fact, if you look at our car companies, uh, continually, it used to be an issue. People would have car accidents and uh, they would die, so we had, well, we need seatbelts. Well, now we need uh, airbags. Well, now it, it keeps on going. All the safety features where now your car will stop itself if you're not stopping it before you get there. And it's moving all the way to driverless cars because what they found out is the cars are safer than the drivers are. And we still say it's not enough. (laughs) Because we're constantly wanting to move into this guaranteed safety where nothing can harm you ever, even as we live in the midst of a very dangerous world. C.S. Lewis reminds us, though, in... uh, Reminds us in one of his uh, talks he gave to college students during um, World War II that even war itself does not raise the death rate. Even war itself does not raise the death rate because death will come to 100% of people alive now. He said that rate can't be raised. People will die earlier, maybe in war. And were you not to die in war, maybe 
60 years later from cancer. One way or the other, though, all of us will die. And so the thing about war, though, is not only do our people generally more prepared to die then, but um, the thing about war that actually is to our advantage is that it forces us to remember that death is real, that we will die. Because otherwise, what do we do? We push it away. And we try to convince ourselves through this ever-increasing drive for safety that if we just do enough things to make us safe, that death won't get me. The other people who aren't as careful. But I can create my own fortress, castle, and bubble where I'm safe from all the threats and all the dangers of the outside world. This is a constant threat, not only to us individually, but especially as a church, when we try to pull away from ever, all the dangers of the world and just become safe. In fact, that is the guarantee to death of the church. I have a story to share with you that you've probably heard before, but it is one worth sharing. This is years, uh, from years and years ago. It is a made-up story. But the point that it illustrates shows uh, this is an ongoing issue in the life of church. It was on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur. There was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to be associated with the station and give their time, money, and effort to support the work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decoration, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful new club was in chaos. Immediately, the property committee hired someone to rig up a shower house outside the club, where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. A small, a small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. The small group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club. And yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. 
Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the passengers drown. It's not difficult to find the parallels there. When we forget what it is that we have been called to do, when Jesus calls his disciples and says, go into all the world and make disciples. And he also tells them, but wait, don't do it till the Holy Spirit comes. And then we see on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and what is the first thing that happens? As Peter stands up in the midst of people who are, gonna, are already making fun of him. He doesn't even have to wonder, are they going to make fun of me? He knows, they're already making fun of him. And he stands up in the middle of that and says, let me tell you, let me tell you about Jesus. There is a difference between risky behavior and risk-taking. We are not called to risky behavior. We are not called to engage in risk-taking for the sake of risk-taking or even for the thrill of taking risks. But we are certainly not called to cowardice. We are certainly called to take risks for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of making disciples. In the talk a few years ago that pretty well launched the denomination we are currently a part of, John Ortberg asked why. Why we would bother with a new denomination? Why we would bother doing something that was messy, complicated, difficult, risky, hard? And so the question is, what problem are you trying to solve? He said, you better get real careful. You better be real clear on knowing what is the problem you're trying to solve. This is real important. The problem is not denominational ambiguity. The problem is not ecclesiastical dividedness. The problem is not even ineffectiveness. The problem is people are going to hell. So do you all understand that is not a glib statement about cartoonish pictures of afterlife that call for simplistic methodologies? It's about spiritual reality that was defined for us a long time ago when Jesus talked about what he was going to do. This one rabbi and a couple of fairly confused followers. What are the odds we'd still be here 2,000 years later? So I think about this sometimes. If you're a visitor back in the first century, you can see on the one hand there was Jesus and his 12 disciples. On the other hand, there's this great, powerful Roman Empire. Who would you put your money on? would still be around 2,000 years later. Yet here we are after a few millennia. We give our children names like Peter and Mary and Paul, and we give our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. That's true. It says Jesus says he's building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. It is not acceptable to Jesus that hell prevails. It is not okay. People will sometimes ask, how is your church doing? Real important to think about, what does it mean for our church to be doing okay? Our job is not to do okay. Our job is not to meet a budget or run a program or fill a building or maintain the status quo. Our job is not to do pretty good compared with other churches in the denomination. Jesus did not say, love this line, on this rock I will build my church and it will be pretty good compared with other churches in the denomination. 
He said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our job is to put hell out of business. And that is why Jesus went to the cross on Friday, laid in tomb on Saturday, and was raised to life on Sunday. So I have zero desire to be part of a church that is okay to be doing okay while hell is prevailing all around me. I do not believe God's will for us to think in terms of survival or comparison. And like a lot of you in this room, I have reached a point in my life where I'm keenly aware every day counts. This is a part of what I can say that talk that sort of kicked off this denomination, but it's really not that much different than all the talks that have gone on before it. As life-saving station after life-saving station has been turned into club after club. And you have somebody like Peter who stands up full of the Spirit and says, this is not what we're about. What we are about is what God is doing. About who he is, how he is working in our lives. It's all about Jesus. The temptation is always to go back to safety and preservation and how can we keep things the way we like to keep them. But the call is always to move forward to risk-taking and expansion. Now, it's difficult to remember but it's easy to figure out how to keep this in mind. First, it's always focused on me. Us. How can we keep things the way we like to keep them. But the risk-taking expansion is always focused on the others. The same way that the life-saving station did. That's very different to this. What is it that Jesus uh, says the great two commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is risky to love your neighbor as yourself. It is risky to stand up in, a, in the midst of a society that's likely to make fun, not worse, you should make fun of believers in Jesus and to have those kinds of conversations with people. So if you're looking for one way you can actually take a risk, look for conversations that you are already in this week where Jesus' name could easily not be mentioned. And see if, uh, if there might be a way where you can turn that conversation into one where Jesus' name is mentioned. It is a risk. A very minor one, all things considered, but it is a risk. The question is in that moment, are you more concerned with your own safety and preserving things the way they've always been? For taking that risk, the expansion of the kingdom of God, and the gospel spreading, and disciples being made. As I mentioned last week, these things are not rebukes because we are doing everything wrong. We are certainly not. I don't want anybody to walk out of here saying, Joe sure thinks we get everything wrong. <laughs> not at all. In fact, I know there's a lot of this that's going right a lot of the time. But it's always the temptation for all of us to go back to safety and preservation. But it's always the call to go forward, not to be afraid, but to trust in the God, in the God who equips us to do the things that he's calling us to do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.